the primary focus of the debate of evolution versus creation is not the evidence itself. While of course the evidence is important, what's even more important is the worldview which one examines the evidence through. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host Nathan, and this episode will conclude our three-part series on Genesis and evolution. The topic of this episode will be the history behind the evolutionary worldview. For much of the content of this episode, I'm actually going to be pulling straight from a research paper I authored during a church history course from my master's degree in theological studies. My goal here is to illuminate the anti-Christian motives behind the men who popularized evolution and millions of years, and to discuss the effects these beliefs have had on the typical modern church. Instead of being the result of an objective pursuit of truth, the evolutionary worldview is based on naturalistic, anti-biblical presuppositions which have resulted in a logical, social, and moral breakdown of our culture. To begin our conversation on the history of evolutionary thought, I'd like to define three terms. 1. Naturalism, which is the belief that nothing supernatural exists and therefore everything we observe must be the result of purely natural explanations. Since God is supernatural, by definition, one who subscribes to naturalism must be an atheist. 2. Deism, which is the belief that even though God created the universe, this God does not intervene with the universe. While deists accept God's existence as a valid explanation for how the universe began in the first place, they rely on natural explanations for anything that took place after the initial creation of the universe. Deism is obviously incompatible with the character of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible directly interacts with his creation. And 3. Uniformitarianism, which is the belief common in scientific fields that what we observe today is the result of continuous and uniform processes. This word will be very important to our discussion because it is one of the primary beliefs for the evolutionary worldview. Instead of looking at the different rock layers, for example, and thinking that they were laid down rapidly during the catastrophe of Noah's flood, those who subscribe to uniformitarianism believe that the rock layers were laid down over millions of years by slow and steady processes. Now that we've defined these three important terms, I want to jump back in history to the time of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an intellectual and philosophical movement which primarily occurred in Europe in the late 17th to early 19th centuries. This era is particularly significant 
when studying the secularization of the West because Enlightenment philosophy was highly critical of all forms of traditional authority, particularly those associated with religion. Enlightenment thinking sought the establishment of a new social order based on reason, natural law, and political democracy. Though the Bible encourages an appropriate level of skepticism by commanding Christians to examine everything carefully in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, the Enlightenment produced an attitude of cynicism toward the idea of God and the authority of the Bible. The popularization of this hypercritical viewpoint would serve as a natural catalyst for the abandonment of scripture and the promotion of naturalism. While the Bible disapproves of blind faith, yet encourages faith based on reason, as can be seen in Proverbs 14.15, Acts 17.11, etc., enlightenment thinking was a primary factor in the popularization of the belief that faith and reason are mutually exclusive. People began to trust their intellect over the clear teachings of the Bible, which led to unbiblical beliefs such as deism. Since some biblical subjects, such as the nature of God and the afterlife, must be determined by scripture alone, naturalists eventually attacked a biblical teaching which they thought could be scrutinized by empirical data, which was the creation narrative in Genesis. Perhaps the most popular estimation for the age of Earth based on biblical data comes from James Usher in 1650, who calculated the creation to have taken place in 4004 BC. Estimates for the creation of Earth had also been made by multiple other figures in history, such as John Lightfoot, Johannes Kepler, and even Isaac Newton. And all of these men calculated that from the biblical text alone, the creation took place approximately 4,000 years before Christ was born. It is significant to note that all of these estimates are close to the year 4000 BC, which is drastically less than the naturalistic estimation that Earth is 4.5 billion years old. So, for centuries, it was a popular belief that the Earth was only a few thousand years old. However, during the Enlightenment era, a man named James Hutton, who was a Scottish natural philosopher, boldly confronted this centuries-old wisdom. Writing in 1788, he formally presented what he thought was proof that the Earth was significantly older than 6,000 years. According to Hutton, Earth was so old that its age could not accurately be calculated. It could be hundreds of millions of years old, or it could be billions. James Hutton's uniformitarian interpretation of geology had an impact on a future lawyer and geologist known as Charles Lyell, who promoted an old earth 
and openly opposed biblical chronology. Regarding his most popular work, titled Principles of Geology, Lyle stated that the information in this book would free the science from Moses. So clearly, Lyle's motive shows in this quote here that part of his primary purpose was to take what he observed in nature and separate it from a biblical interpretation. So instead of considering the Bible's description of how God created the universe and earth and how God flooded the earth during the times of Noah, Lyle's purpose was to try and explain how everything got here without God. So he started with an assumption that a God which interacts with his creation does not exist. And therefore, he tried to explain everything he observed in nature by a purely atheistic or natural worldview. Concerning the position that Noah's flood was responsible for the majority of fossils found throughout the earth, Lyle claimed that never did a theoretical fallacy in any branch of science interfere more seriously with accurate observation and the systematic classification of facts. Lyle's work resulted in the widespread acceptance of geological uniformitarianism as opposed to the catastrophism provided in Genesis. So we talked about earlier how uniformitarianism is the idea of slow and steady change. However, according to the Bible, there was a catastrophe in the past, which was the flood of Noah that covered the entire world. So, because of Lyle's work, the idea of slow and steady change replaced the worldwide flood of Noah as the basis for the interpretation of the geological evidence. And I want to really emphasize how important that is, that it's the interpretation one starts with which will have the biggest impact on the conclusions they draw. It's not necessarily the evidence. While yes, of course, the evidence is important, the worldview and the lens one looks at the evidence through plays an even bigger role at shaping the conclusion they will come to. And of course, we cannot talk about evolution and millions of years without bringing up Charles Darwin. Perhaps the most famous biologist of all time, Charles Darwin is responsible for popularizing the evolutionary hypothesis that all life forms are related to one another and can be traced back to a universal common ancestor which existed billions of years ago. While the literal interpretation of Genesis was already under attack by the work of Hutton and Lyle, Darwin added yet another argument against the historical accuracy of Genesis by postulating that God did not create every kind of plant and animal within a six-day period to produce after their kind. Instead, Darwin claimed that from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. 
Aside from the altered perception of God's character, which came from Darwinian evolution, it also served as the gateway to atheism. While uniformitarianism supposedly explained how Earth formed without any divine intervention, macroevolution functioned in the same way concerning the formation of life. If Earth, life, and mankind had created themselves, then the need for God to explain the universe becomes exceedingly obsolete. Darwin himself stated that concerning his writings, I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. So here Darwin is admitting himself the close relationship between evolution and atheism. Because of course, if mankind and all of life were just created by natural processes over millions of years, there's no need for God to explain our existence. Instead of aggressively questioning the supposed science behind Darwin's claims and standing firm on the interpretation of Genesis, which has been held by the church for centuries, churches began to compromise their beliefs. Within only a decade of Darwin's publication of On the Origin of Species, Catholics and Protestants alike were already incorporating it into their reading of Genesis. For example, Cardinal John Henry Newman claimed in 1868 that Mr. Darwin's theory need not then to be atheistical, be it true or not, and I do not see that the accidental evolution of organic beings is inconsistent with divine design. Even prominent theologian Karl Barth did not condemn evolutionary ideals, stating that the creation narrative in Genesis is in the form of a saga or poem. Thus, one's attitude to the creation story and the theory of evolution can take the form of an either-or only if one shuts oneself off completely either from faith in God's revelation or from the mind for scientific understanding. And after reading this quote by Karl Barth, I would recommend you go back and listen to the previous episode, which deals with arguments from theistic evolutionists, because in that we show that it is much more rational to read Genesis as a true historical narrative rather than some figurative poem or myth. Anyway, the promotion of Genesis as allegory and macroevolution as fact has contributed to the 2013 statistic that nearly 8 in 10 mainline Protestants say that humans and other living things have evolved over time. And that statistic was taken straight from a Pew Research article titled Public's Views on Human Evolution. However, perhaps even more popular than theistic evolution is the belief in an old earth among churches and seminaries. 
As we discussed in the last two episodes, the two most common Old Earth positions in churches are the gap theory, which states that a gap of billions of years exists between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and the day-age theory, which states that God created in a series of acts over long periods of time, and thus the days in Genesis 1 are not literal 24-hour days. Even in the popular seminary book titled Christian Theology by Miller J. Erickson, which is the book I actually read during my theology courses in seminary, Erickson states that James Usher's conclusion that the creation took place approximately 4,000 years before Jesus was satisfactory before the development of modern geology, which is only rather a recent development, and that given the conclusions drawn by modern geology, the day-age theory seems to be the most plausible answer to the age of creation. And once again, I would point you back to our last two episodes to demonstrate um, the error in Erickson's thinking here. But we see that one of the most popular books in seminaries promotes an old earth and shrugs off evolution as an irrelevant issue, which I would totally disagree with. Uh, I think it is a very important issue, as we discussed in the last couple episodes. As with Darwinian evolution, though, many churchgoers also fail to see any contradiction between a belief in Christianity and a belief that Earth is billions of years old. Now we are going to look at the divorce of faith and science. The popularization of naturalism in the West has caused many today to share a common opinion that any reference to a creator is automatically ruled out as a non-scientific explanation. H.G. Wells who was a prolific author and also not a Christian, pointed out that if all the animals and mankind have evolved over time, then there were no first parents, no Eden, and no fall. And if there had been no fall, then the entire historical fabric of Christianity and the reason for an atonement collapses like a house of cards. And I completely agree with H.G. Wells' statement here. As I noted in the first episode of this series, if one does not believe in a literal Genesis, then the whole foundation for interpreting the Bible and truly appreciating the atonement of Jesus Christ goes out the window. Unfortunately, the militant attitude in favor of naturalism has resulted in the common perception that the Bible is unscientific, while Darwinian evolution is a scientific fact. Notable atheist Daniel Dennett stated that anyone today who doubts that the variety of life on this planet was produced by a process of evolution is simply ignorant. Because Darwinism has been disguised as science, and Christian fundamentalism has been labeled as blind faith, the notion that Christian faith is incompatible with reason has had drastic consequences 
for the church. Recent decades have shown a mass exodus of young people leaving the church, as the number of Americans who identify as Christian decreased more than 15% from 2009 to 2019. Furthermore, according to a study by the Pew Research Center titled, In U.S., Decline of Christianity Continues at Rapid Pace, the most common responses for why people have left the church include 1. Learning about evolution when I went away to college. 2. Rational thought. 3. Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. And it's a shame that these people have been deceived into thinking that science does not support God's existence. Because as we've already discussed in previous episodes, it takes way more blind faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. The promotion of the evolutionary worldview as science by society has resulted in the widespread rejection of Genesis as literal history. While some have attempted to blend the evolutionary and Christian worldviews by means of theistic evolution and old earth theology, others have recognized the two positions to be mutually exclusive and have abandoned Christianity to maintain logical consistency. A common defense by modern theistic evolutionists and old earth theologians is to claim that God could have created everything in any amount of time he wanted to, which is absolutely correct. However, as noted in the previous episodes, the primary issue at stake here is not God's power. The issue at stake is the trustworthiness of what the Bible plainly says. Therefore, the church should be cautious about interpreting Genesis, which is foundational to fully appreciating the death of Christ, as allegorical. Dr. Terry Mortensen brings up a good point by stating that it seems inconsistent with the truth-loving nature of God revealed in Scripture to think that for about 3,000 years, God let faithful Jews and Christians especially the writers of scripture, believe that Genesis teaches a literal six-day creation about 6,000 years ago, but then in the early 19th century, he used godless men, which were scientists who rejected the Bible as God's inerrant word, to correct the church's understanding of Genesis. And I love that quote by Terry Mortensen because I think that's such an interesting perspective to have. To think that Christians for centuries just believed what Genesis and the Bible plainly said and believed that God created everything in six days about 6,000 years ago. But then all of a sudden, in the 18th and 19th centuries, God used men who were driven by atheist presuppositions, such as James Hutton, Charles Lyell, and Charles Darwin to explain to the church the true interpretation of Genesis. Uh, I think that's a great way to look at it because that really emphasizes how ridiculous that position is.
So, in conclusion, while tracing the historical impact that naturalism has had on the common church's interpretation of the Bible is devastating, it is also predictable. Though the Christian worldview commends rational thought, the seeds of skepticism which were planted during the Enlightenment eventually sprouted into hypercritical cynicism, which resulted in doubt toward the Bible's scientific and historical validity. Once men such as Hutton, Lyell, and Darwin began to promote an alternative worldview which they claimed was better supported by the data, biblical faith and science were perceived to be incompatible. The promotion of naturalism, which began some 200 years ago, still infects many modern churches by the compromised positions of theistic evolution and old earth theology. Philosophical and scientific arguments against naturalism have produced a breed of Christians who maintain intellectual convictions for believing the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Research strengthens biblical faith, and most importantly, it reinforces Jesus' statement that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And before fully wrapping up this episode, I just want to recap two major points. The first point is that the primary focus of the debate of evolution versus creation is not the evidence itself. While of course the evidence is important, what's even more important is the worldview which one examines the evidence through. If someone starts their search for truth, by already concluding that God does not exist, then they will naturally find a way to ignore the evidence which disproves evolution. This is because, as Richard Dawkins states, evolution is the only game in town as far as an atheistic explanation for life is concerned. Furthermore, evolutionists need deep time and billions of years so they can hide all of their imaginary ideas in the far and distant past. Evolution and millions of years go hand in hand because in the atheist mind, you cannot have evolution without deep time. The other major point I wanted to discuss is the fact that you can see by the studies and surveys, this topic really is a big deal. For too long, people have just shrugged this issue off as being irrelevant, but in reality, it's a major issue because it has a huge impact on the foundational Christian beliefs of biblical inerrancy, inspiration, and authority. And with that, we will finally conclude this episode and therefore finish our series on Genesis and evolution I want to thank you for listening. I truly appreciate your support and interest. And most of all, I hope that this information has brought you closer to God and increased your knowledge of him.